The Lord be with you. And also with you. Blessed is the Lord who forgives all our sin. God's mercy endures. Where the dawn of the east meets the twilight of the west and the cool of the north touches the calm of the south and the transcendent power of God touches earth in the humility of Christ, here and now where the head of the Charles reaches out to the heart of the country, we gather for ordered worship. The liturgy, music, and homily are offered this day for our gathered congregation here in Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selections of forms of service and ministry in our midst, and as the Spirit moves, come Sunday, your presence with us in worship. This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
May we pray together. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Beloved, we receive God's pardon and peace and grace today, remembering the prayer of St. Patrick, Christ be with us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ in us, Christ beneath us, Christ above us, Christ on our right, Christ on our left, Christ where we lie, Christ where we sit, Christ where we arise, Christ in the heart of everyone who is with us. May your salvation, your grace, your pardon, O Lord, be ever with us as we pause now to offer our silent prayers of confession. Let us pray. Beloved, hear the good news. If we confess our sin, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 16 through 21. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join me in reading responsibly verses from Psalm 126 with the antiphon. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the water courses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out with weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. And now please rise as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel lesson. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Glory to you, O Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made from pure nard anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always will have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. be seated. Our mentor and friend, the Reverend Russell Clark, a Colgate and Boston University graduate, both served a small church in Oriskany Falls, New York, for many years. He dodged and weaved as appointments elsewhere were offered to bigger churches and salaries. He stayed. He fell in love with a quieter life, natural beauty, the intrigue of pastoral ministry, the mystery of the quotidian. The Clark home in those years sported a large twirling bookshelf in the living room filled with novels, histories, and poetry. His lay leader died after some years to the regret and lasting hurt of the community. People are not replaceable. The widow, usually of regular perfect attendance in worship, stayed home for some time. 
At last in Lent she appeared, and Russell asked her how she found her way through the morass, the mess, the maze of grief, and back to church. She said, well, it was not the scripture, though I love all the scripture. It was not the hymns, though I sing them to myself day by day. It was not your visits, though they were gracious. It was not the family care and feeding or that of neighbors. It was not my personal faith in the resurrection, though I do have faith. It was not even prayer, though I practice formal prayer evening and morning at meals and at bedtime. It was just this. The chickens had to be fed every morning. So I got up every morning. And once I was up, the rest of the day, and at last, over longer time, the week and the month, including even Sunday mornings, seemed to fall in line. It was the chickens, the clucking of those hens. The clucking of those hens meant more to me in healing than all the hymns of Easter. The regularity of feeding them early in the morning restored me over time. The clucking of those chickens meant more to me than all the hymns of Easter. Come Lent here at Marsh Chapel, we converse each year with our sibling Christians out of the Calvinist tradition. We grow and learn from and with the slight difference in sibling traditions wherein we do not always agree, but agree to disagree agreeably. Our interlocutor this year, 2013, is Marilyn Robinson, essayist, novelist, Calvinist. Her love of scripture, her sense of the eternal, her rendering of John Calvin, her prophetic defense of wonder in our time, her unwillingness to buy the cheap goods of a culture that languishes in the doldrums of a pervasive malaise, her celebration of quiet life, pastoral ministry, providential grace, and the deeps of love. All these human gifts we gratefully receive from her this year, especially her sense of the extraordinary in the ordinary. Health in the clucking of hands helps us this year Listen to her voice on scripture. One Easter, I went with my grandfather to a small Presbyterian church in northern Idaho where I heard a sermon on the discrepancies in the gospel accounts of the resurrection. I was a young child, but I remember that sermon. I can imagine myself that primal Easter restive at my grandfather's elbow, pushing my nickels and dimes of collection money into the tips of my gloves, memorably forbidden to remove my hat. It seems to me I felt God as a presence before I had a name for him. I was aware to the point of alarm, of a vast energy of intention all around me, and I thought everyone else must be aware of it too. Only in church did I hear experience like mine acknowledged in all those strange narratives read and expounded. Amen, the preacher said that Easter, having blessed my life with a lovely thing to ponder. On speech, what should we call the presiding intelligence that orchestrates the decision to speak as a moment requires? 
What governs the inflections that make any utterance unmistakably the words of one speaker in this whole language-saturated world? On sin, it took, for instance, three decades of the most brilliant and persistent campaign of preachment and information to establish, in the land of liberty, the idea that slavery was intolerable. On salvation, Calvin's theology is compelled and enthralled by an overwhelming awareness of the grandeur of God. His sense of things is so overwhelmingly visual and cerebral that the other senses do not interest him. Heaven's essence for him is that it is inconceivable in the world's terms, another order of experience. On service, we should maintain an appropriate humility in the face of what we think we know. Encourage an imagination of humankind large enough to acknowledge some small fragment of the mystery we are. I do not think it is nostalgia to suggest that it would be well to reestablish the setting apart of time traditionally devoted to religious observance. Speaking of speech, my former teacher, Tom Dreiber, recently remembered. I was 25 years old in 1950, a bachelor newly arrived in New York City to attend graduate school. I bought a single ticket and went alone to see director Harold Clurman's production of The Member of the Wedding by the Southern author Carson McCullers. With the rest of the audience, I was put under a spell by Ethel Waters singing His Eyes on the Sparrow. There came another spell at the final curtain. The play's central focus had been the longing of a pre-adolescent girl to escape from her loneliness. Young Frankie Adams, played by Julie Harris, wants to be part of the forthcoming wedding of her older sister. This privilege is not readily granted, but in the last scene, the way becomes clear, and she exclaims with joy, the wedding will be the we of me. Curtain. I will never forget what happened next. There was long applause and several curtain calls, and then we just sat there. No one wanted to leave. The strangers sitting next to me were just as slow to move as I was, and after a few moments, we hitherto strangers began to talk to each other. The theater had become the we of us. The performances on stage had performed something over and above the dramatis personae roles, They had created for that brief moment in time, less brief than most such occasions, a community of people whose lives otherwise did not cross. It is called theater magic, which means no one quite understands it and can never predict just when it will occur. But when it does, our joy is immense. It is similar to an experience of religious transcendence. Our gospel today, John chapter 12, raises for us, among other things, the question of authority and emphasizes the authority of experience, of transcendence. Religions wrestle with authority all the time, everywhere. 
the current change in Rome and the ascendancy of Francis, our Pope, our brother, whom we honor, encourage, and celebrate, recalls for us centuries of struggle over authority. To the Calvinist right, all authority is vested in scripture. The Bible is the only full authority, sola scriptura, and historic, in some ways tragic, manner of interpretation of life and love. To the Catholic left, final authority is vested in the Bishop of Rome. Before we, or more specifically I, become too critical of these vested stations, we, or I, must also recognize that at some point, someone has to break the tie, make the decision, guide the church, be primus inter pares, whether in the form of a breathing holy person or in the form of a spirited breathing holy text. My own tradition, that of Marsh Chapel, attempts to have it all or both ways, not always with shining success. Methodism combines Catholic tradition, Reformation message, Anglican liturgy, Puritan discipline, and pietist feeling. Methodism interprets scripture through tradition, tradition through experience, and experience through reason. And such a separation of powers, by the way, has great advantages for us in our work in a university setting. But what of our gospel, John, here, chapter 12? What form of authority does the gospel of John prefer, elect, select, and prize? Ah, I'm glad you asked. No church in John, just a communal experience. No leadership in John, just the deeds and words of the risen, I mean crucified, I mean incarnate, I mean, I mean spirited one. No worries in ethics in John about ethics. No catalog of virtues or vices, just a single command to love. No hierarchy, patriarchy, oligarchy, ecclesiology in John, just this. Spirit, spirit, another counselor with you forever, a guide into all further truth. Now, how is that going to work? Exactly. That is why in the New Testament we have not only the gospel, but also the letters of John, uno, dos, and tres, because clearly it did not. And the letters add back in, leadership, orthodoxy, ethics, teaching, form, all. They wake up and wake others up from the Johannine dream. But what a dream! A spirited dream of spirit befitting any high Calvinist view of scripture and any high Catholic view of clergy. A dream of spirit leading to truth over time. There is a self-correcting spirit of truth loose in the universe. A fullness of fragrance, spirit in life. As in Proust, what matters is to transform common occurrence into art. You will recognize the story of the anointing at Bethany, or do you? It's like the familiar parable. Now I'm playing a little bit here. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and saw a man who had fallen among thieves. So he went and he asked his father for his inheritance. The father gave him seeds to plant, but most fell on rocky ground. 
So he appealed to a judge who would not listen, and then to a dishonest steward who would listen, but who stole the rest of the seeds, and then planted them, and they multiplied 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. But he left the 99 of the fold and went after a lost sheep. On the way, he stumbled on a lost coin and put it in his tunic. This will be like a mustard seed, he thought, which is small but grows into a big plant. He went back to his father and said, I am not worthy to be called your son, but make me a worker in a vineyard and pay me as much as you pay those who started at dawn. Which of these do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? That is, sometimes our religious memory isn't purely perfect. That is, John has somehow combined a story which was also known to Mark and used by Matthew with a story from Luke, unused by Mark or Matthew, and has added his own special ingredients or Johannine special sauce, if you will, or maybe a redactor re-edited passages in the, in the lesson. For the record, John has added Judas as the stingy knee-jerk liberal. John has added Judas' motive, not so liberal, of greed. John has not kept Mark's ethical admonition. He kept, for you have the poor with you, but he didn't keep, whenever you want, you can do good to them. But Matthew also apparently has erased that sentence for who knows what reason. John also has misplaced or erased the fine conclusion, which Mark writes and Matthew copies. That is, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. John also neglects to repeat that Jesus said of Mary's act that she has done a beautiful thing for me. In other words, what has been told in John was not so much in memory of her, but about something else. Most delicately, Mark and John both use a rare adjective rendered here by the English word pure, which comes in the original from the same root as the word faith. The Gospels repeated an admonition from Deuteronomy 15, the poor are ever present, not at all to discountenance care of the poor, so important to us and rightly so, but to lift the fragrance of wonder at the heart of the gospel to the highest level. John alone fills the room with fragrance. That is his point here. Incense, the sense of the holy, the mysterium tremendum, the idea of the holy, the presence. In John, resurrection precedes crucifixion. Crucifixion is merely a coming occasion for incarnation. Incarnation is a lasting Fragrance, in this reading, the fullness of fragrance, the wonder of faith beckoning this Passion St. Patrick's Sunday, beckoning faith that hallows whom it first made hold for, forms the Savior in the soul. The fragrance beckons us to faith. The fragrance beckons us to faith. 
So we leave Marilyn Robinson, thankful for her Lenten care, giving her the next to last word, she wrote. So I have spent my life watching, not to see beyond the world, merely to see great mystery, what is plainly before my eyes. I think the concept of transcendence is based on a misreading of creation. With all respect to heaven, the scene of miracle is right here among us. That is, my friend, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Not everything measurable is meaningful, and not everything meaningful is measurable. The greater the sea of knowledge, the longer the shoreline of mystery surrounding it. The world does not lack for wonders, but only for a sense of wonder. So filled is it, filled with fragrance. Amen.